Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, strap in for this conversation. You're about to hear Mark Ritson wax lyrical on why Tourism Australia and its CMO, Susan Cogill, have shown the international marketing set how brand strategy, distinctive assets and advertising effectiveness should be done. It's a textbook case, Ritson argues, on doing everything right. Susan and Mark are in the studio this week, fresh from a keynote in London at the Festival of Marketing, where they jointly presented Tourism Australia's grand strategy and some updated results on the global campaign blitz that Susan unleashed on the world bang on a year ago to get travellers back down under. Interesting that some advertising and marketing experts and cultural progressives thought Tourism Australia's Say G'day effort was naff and predictable. In the characteristically blunt parlance of Mark Ritson, they know shit. So, given the Brits and Europeans got the latest on how this textbook global campaign from Australia has travelled since its launch last October, the only egalitarian thing to do was for Susan and Mark to jump on the mics with MI3 and tell the rest of us. So, welcome both. No doubt we're about to make a few experts squirm. Well, Mr Ritson is anyway. While others curious and open-minded enough to hear out a cracking case study, will come away with some new insights and possibly tighter strategies. We're going to unpack the context, backdrop and strategic challenge that Susan was dealing with as she built out this brand Australia work, which always has plenty of armchair and expert critics. But before that, a little teaser from Mark Ritson. Welcome, Mark. You're not often backwards on calling out the good, bad and ugly, but you're close to, I think, frothing on what Susan's done at Tourism Australia. But top line, why are you so frothy, Mr Ritson? Welcome. Hello, Mac. Um, I've always been quite frothy about Tourism Australia, and Susan's recent work has just made me overcome with frothiness. Um, <laughs> and the reason for the frothiness is important, I think, and, and we should let Susan speak for most of the session. She did all the work, yes. after all. Well, we're slipstreaming. <laughs> you and I should just talk over for yeah, the whole hour. The that whole would be, hour, that would that. be yeah. you know, the, the norm. I think, you know, and Susan's obviously in the room, so I don't want to embarrass her. For me, Susan's a perfect CMO, and I don't say those words lightly. She doesn't have the biggest budget. She's not the world's smartest marketer. I'm not, not saying that to suggest she's stupid, but she's not 200 points of IQ. What Susan has done, I think better than anyone I know, is first of all, listen and learn from all the other material case studies and theories that are out there. And these days, that's quite a corpus of material. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And then... Unlike people like me and you who commentate in, in rooms like this with microphones, rhubarb, rhubarb, you know what I mean? Yeah. She then has used and applied that material to her own ends and the service of her brand. So what we'll hear for the next 40, 50 minutes is, and again, I, I don't mean this as a backhanded compliment, is not revolutionary. We're not doing anything counterintuitive. She's not doing anything revolutionary. But what she's doing is demonstrating that the effectiveness book that's built when you just follow the bloody instructions is a really mighty and influential thing and in, in it some might actually work it might actually be effective yeah, yeah. and i think that's why uh, you know you can get i grow tired of all our sort of experts who grow sort of grow you know if you come up with a law of something they find a reason why it doesn't apply i don't think that's that's helpful you know and it's everyone trying to find a little run in the ladder of marketing thinkers 
here's here's a woman who's come along and just gone, yeah, whatever, it's not that complex. Let's take it, let's apply it, let's put a lot of hard work in, and let's produce work that ticks the boxes of effectiveness and, as you'll see in a moment, is is very effective as a result. Just out of interest, Susan, um, how much have you paid, Mark? Ritson? Yeah, not nearly enough. Not clearly, nearly enough. Jeez, no, well, I'm no, blushing, more. absolutely blushing. No, clearly enough, because yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure you get much out more than and, that. And we should make it clear: I have had absolutely nothing to do with this work, other than uh, we've had an occasional side chat, have we not? Yes. Across the last sort of two years, yeah, yeah. Si- since the bad old days, really, right yes. when we were. But I am not responsible for anything. I'm just a fan. I'm here as a commentator slash fan. I have. It's That's, all Susan. It's not mm. me. That's why I'm doing all the talking. I, yeah, <laughs> yes, it's right. Amazing. I am uh, over the moon with your response, however, Mark. And honestly, on behalf of my team, who are incredibly smart and hardworking themselves, who deserve as much of, if not the most of the credit that you're giving to me, um, thank you. Really appreciate it. Yes. Well, enough of the good, you know, frothy stuff. Let's yeah. get to the grunty, um, interesting things about what you had to do, Susan. Um, we'll set up. Mark did say that, you know, you didn't have a, a massive budget. It was $125 million odd million thereabouts for a global effort that it was, the budget was built up over a couple of years, yeah, right? There was correct. some hangover from yeah, government funding and so forth. It was, and, yeah. So over a couple of years, and also remember that as media and production, uh, PR, et cetera, that is all in across 15 markets. So mm. I appreciate it. Base value, 125 looks, million sounds like a lot, but when you parse that out uh, across that number, those number of markets, it's not a huge budget. No, fact. and it's Mark's turnover annual. So, you know, it's, just a, it's, <laughs> a, it's a small amount to me, but <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, right. So let's let's set the scene, Susan, um, yep. on the problem you were trying to solve for yep. with this campaign and how you set about, to Mark's point, how you set about assembling the componentry around brand and ad effectiveness that shaped what you did from the get-go. Yep. So give us some context. Um, let's go back in a couple of years and what was going on. Yep. So, well, Crazy COVID. I'm, I'm going to go back even before that. Worse than COVID. <laughs> yeah, right. When I was actually in the interview process to get the CMO role, my pitch to uh, the to my then CEO and to the board was that I was coming in to keep the creative bar high, continue the collaboration across all of our markets around the world, because I'm a big believer that there's strength in, yes, our uh, central team in Sydney, but also that local understanding and nuance and ability to go to market. But I said, I'm going to wrap it all in a much more um, rigorous approach to marketing effectiveness and being far more strategic in what we did. So we had started that journey Early on, I guess, in my as my time as a CMO, we started to build out um, a framework for learning more about our category, for learning from other categories. How do we learn from packaged goods, which has, you know, what, 125-odd years of brand management experience? So what are the frameworks that they use to understand how to grow uh, their brands and their business? How do we learn from automotive, et cetera? So we were starting to build those things out already, and then... Uh, we got hit with the bushfires. So that was, that, for us, that was catastrophe number one. And even though the bush... That was 2019? 2020, when 20, it really okay, hit hard, right when it really yep. started to hit our hit our tourism uh, industry, because uh, even though a, a relatively small portion of the country was on fire, and I don't mean to diminish what was an incredibly devastating experience and really horrific for many parts of the country, the truth is it was starting to hurt tourism Uh, business uh, across the entire country. So we were seeing um, visitors canceling travel all the way up to like far north Queensland, for example, which was Mm. miles away from where um, the fires were happening. So that was a major brand issue for us. And just as we were preparing messaging to come out and help the world understand that, in fact, all of Australia was not on fire and why they should still come visit. And we had at that point also kind of pivoted to encouraging the domestic market to travel um, our own backyard uh, to support the industry as well. Boom, the pandemic hit. And that was sort of, again, a sequence of catastrophes really that hit our tourism uh, industry. So it was the closure of the international borders. Then it was a closure of the state borders and lockdown. 
which then, of course, hampered all of the domestic travel. So whilst we were focusing on getting, again, getting our domestic audience to travel like our international travelers do, there's just a truism that when you travel close to home, you tend to do less, spend less. It's a little less special of a trip. When you go overseas, you do more, you pay for experiences, you eat at a really great restaurant. So we did a whole body of work around understanding our domestic traveler, where they go, and how we can encourage them to take bigger, more epic trips that have, have more experiences in getting people to spend more. Is this a reaction to COVID and lockdowns? Or this is well, this was off the back of the bushfires, bushfires and right. then through the pandemic. Right. So as borders were opening and closing, as we were trying to get build confidence in Australians to get them out traveling again. So we were sort of already applying, I guess, that sort of strategic rigor in the domestic market. But I'd, we had to sort of split our team and go, this team's looking after domestic and how do we, how do we drive the domestic spend and, and um, travel around the country? But then also, how do we start to get our ducks in a row for when we need to relaunch Brand Australia? So we started, in fact, you know, thinking about our relaunch uh, and borders opening you know, very early in the pandemic and very early in borders closed. We didn't know how long it was going to go for. So a lot of the strategic work kind of started then in early uh, well, it started in 2019, really ramped up in earnest, and in 2020 and 2021, in the lead up to when we would start doing creative development. So we had to get all of those, I guess, we needed to get the insights and, you know, the the research and analysis and the data that goes into those insights all in order. And we needed to understand our strategic pillars. We needed to understand how travelers' um, behavior would be changing um, after the pandemic. And we needed to understand what the impact on our brand was of having borders closed for two years or so. All the while, though, you were building these components of effectiveness mm. that we now hear, you know, yeah. talked globally about how marketing ad effectiveness works. Yep. You'd been convinced of all those things and how you're going to join the dots and bring them together. Was that yeah, in that's play right. at that time? Yeah, that's right. And look, to help um, contextualize this for you, to give you a sense of what it was that we were looking at, because um, I think marketing effectiveness sometimes can just be a big, broad term. And what does that actually mean? Mm. You know, and for us, it's about getting, uh, you know, the inputs right. What do we understand about our customer and about our category? And then how do we uh, build more effective work and how do we measure it at the other end so that we can and get better. And how can we also, very important in my world, is how can we demonstrate the effects and impact that we have? I, my industry, my my business at Tourism Australia as a as a government agency um, is very stakeholder heavy. So you know, how do we quantify the impact that we are then having for the tourism industry? How do we help our government stakeholders understand and our partners understand the impact that we're having? So for you know, getting the inputs right for us, that was about going back and doing full funnel analysis on a market by market basis for us and our competitors. So understanding where we're you know overperforming or underperforming, and where our closest competitors uh, you know may be outperforming. Or and where were you underperforming? Where were the hot spots of challenge? You know, I think as always, we uh, it's a function really for us of proximity. You know, we are uh, unfortunately at the mercy of, of uh, our place on the globe, you know, long so flights. the long flights is one of our biggest challenges. So converting down um, from consideration into intent uh, is where we start to, to drop off. But it's true, not just of Australia, it's true, I guess, of any competitor that is that far away that, you know, has an eight, nine hour plus flight at a distance. So Mark talked about all the the componentry, the effectiveness mm. textbook uh, case that you've produced. What were those core effectiveness components that you were playing with in your strategic build? Who, Mr. Ritson's obviously big on strategy and don't get carried away by tactics and yep. so forth, but all the others, Ehrenberg Bass, yep. um, Field and Burnett, you name it. So where did you start? What did you end up on? Yeah. So for us, so, so it's like doing the full funnel analysis, understanding our brand code. So really um, knowing what was 
the shorthand for Australia in the minds of our consumers around the world. And how does that vary by market? Um, and I often joke, you know, we we did six months worth of research and, you know, put however much resource behind it. And the answer was kangaroo. But of mm-hmm. course it was kangaroo, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there'd be something wrong if the data threw something else up. You know, kangaroo quickly followed by a koala, the opera house, obviously. Um, and we use that to understand then the how we tell our brand story, how we can be distinctly um, Australian in all of our um, communications. One of the biggest challenges in destination tourism marketing is misattribution. You know, we love a we love a montage. We love to show lots of destinations and experiences in our category, which you can understand. We need to show breadth of experience, breadth of the country. But how can we do it in a way that is unmistakably Australian? And, you know, what better way, frankly, than um, to use a character that, or an animal that you cannot find anywhere else in the world and do it in a really charming way? But, but I think, Susan, I think mm. if you look at your your initial strength, it's, again, that ability to before you got into kangaroos, mm. you had that that six months where I've seen your funnels. Mm. You know, they're, they're very detailed. They're mm. different for each country. Yep. You really got stuck into it. And you came out with those classic answers to the, for me, the questions that you have to answer one way or another, which is you knew who you're going after. Yeah. Right? And that, that took a while. I remember you going through that mm. process. You knew what you wanted to say and you knew what the objectives were. And I, I, I know this sounds obvious to you, but I think... You know, I'm, I'm again. I'm sorry to sound so negative sometimes, but I don't know how many marketers, even if they are spending significant amounts of money, go to their agencies with the clarity that you had when you went to M and C. Yeah, well, it, look, I think it's incredibly important, and and I guess knowing that we have to turn up in 15 markets, mm. you know, who all have slightly different, varying um, views around what we offer, what our brand stands for in them. You really do need to be forensic about understanding your brand and your place in the sort of hearts and minds of your consumers around the world. It's just, it's a non-negotiable. But you also had that temptation to go down the personalization, complex segmentation route. Yeah. 15 different countries, never mind, you know, segments. You could have segmented from there. You didn't, but you also didn't go full Ehrenberg, Bastard, sophisticated mass marketing, anyone that could potentially have a holiday, right? So you found that middle ground, which I think is, it's obvious now you sort of recount it. Mm. But I think making that decision across the countries was a big deal, right? Yeah. And look, the, you know, we, it's not just anybody who travels, like, quite honestly, we need to talk to people who have a passport and who do travel out of region and in every country. Which in the States is only about 30% or something. Yeah. It's it? higher now, I understand. Oh, yes, 32%, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> You'd be surprised at how low it is across many markets, by the way. Yeah, but, right. um, you know, there's no point in talking to travelers who, who are only going to stay domestic. We need people who have a you know predisposition to traveling international who are also willing to travel out of region. So they may travel internationally, but they don't want to get on a, a plane for you know eight hours plus or something like that. So people uh, who have traveled out of region, but also people who spend. Um, and that is, uh, that's not everybody who travels. You know, it's, it's a very specific model. You know, it, it's about, it's just over a third of international out of region travel, but it's about it's just over three quarters of the value. Okay, you know, okay. so it's a it's a. But tell me, I mean, you did all target. that work, but was that reinventing the wheel of what who your target? So did your targets change? We're, like, if you were doing all this legwork, surely there was 10, 15 years of stuff that had gone before you. Was your segmentation, however big, broad it was, was it shifting as to who your market was? I think it was less about shifting the target than it was really about understanding that target audience and how do we engage with them and how do we connect with them. And also importantly, where do we find them? And that's something that we're really drilling down to now is actually where do these high yielding travelers reside in each of our countries? So it's easy to say that we, you know, market in Japan or we market in America, but, you know, we know that there's a concentration of them. We know that our 
visitation is um, also driven by aviation access. So you look at a market like the U.S. and you sorry in the U.S. Not surprising that where we have big um, yeah, big ports, we've got Los Angeles or well, California, Texas, and New York mm. um, are our key markets there. So getting smarter about um, where we overinvest our marketing, our media money, um, to drive greater outcomes is a key part of how we're using that data. So let's fast track to what you ended up. You landed on a strategy and uh, primary audience targets. What happened then? And when you were, by the time you're ready to come to market with that, where was the competitive landscape at? Where were the competitive set? What were other international destinations doing? Yep. Uh, had big budgets as well. So yes. you, there's two parts of that question, yes. the lead up to and then what <laughs> happened? So the the lead up to the launch of the campaign, so the development of the campaign, we knew that we needed to uh, address the perceptions that had had grown about Australia in the two years that we were closed. So people weren't clear that we were open. Um, We needed to, our our consideration had started to uh, dip. Um, We needed to address that. We really needed to... Versus others, Susan, or was it just everyone because there was no activity? Initially, of course, the entire market had sort of uh, had dipped because mm. international travel wasn't wasn't possible. But again, I think because we had been closed, we were seeing a significant dip for yep. for us. Or, or a, I wouldn't say significant. Sorry, I should say a, a meaningful dip that we needed to address. You know, ten, fifteen percent, three points, five points. What are we talking? And you know, if you don't know, I'll make one up. Uh, I don't have the number off the top of okay. my head, well, but it's it's important. It, Enough that it was something that we need to make sure that we address because we know that we, as Tourism Australia, we are most impactful, most effective at widening the funnel. So getting more high-yielding travelers to consider coming to Australia, that is the way that we set up our partners at the bottom of the funnel for success in in converting that demand. So that's another key point, which is this two-speed approach, right? So the idea that you can pretty much go for a single type of customer with a more emotional I would always say more video-driven mm. campaign. Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we aren't also bottom of funnel being more targeted, more yes. performance, more rational, et cetera, et cetera. That, for me, the long and the short doesn't always, but usually does play out top and bottom. Yeah. Mm. And I think you see Simultaneously. Yeah. Now, the extra complication here for Susan, remember, is, and this is a good call out for all marketers, but it's especially clear with Tourism Australia, she's got 15 key markets each one has a different funnel. Each one has different competitors, otherwise known as alternative holidays. Different seasonality. Different seasonality, mm. different distances. And although it's very clear that if you're targeting Americans versus the Japanese, there's going to be different implications, it's a good watch out for all marketers who tend to assume a competitive set based on who they think are the competitors. Susan's the one that goes, well, it depends when you talk competition, which market do you mean? Because... Guam is a, no one's heard of Guam in, in, in America, but in Japan, it's right up there in top three. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a good call out that Susan also has to juggle those things. Yeah. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? So I think for us is not getting overly complicated, perhaps about the differences between our markets and, and, um, and our audiences, but also being open to um, the, the facts from the markets as well and the nuance. So, you know, how can we take, how do we take the broader strategy and the insights that we have, but how do we also localize it, implement it in market to make sure that we're driving Absolutely. the results that we mm, need? Yeah. Mm. Okay. So um, I just want to tease a little bit before we get to the brief, but the international yeah. markets, you had 
some of the uh, Middle Eastern destinations yeah. coming out early and hard with big budgets and glo- is that right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, rewind back to September 2022 or so, uh, and we were again one of the uh, last markets to reopen to the world. So we were a little bit on the back foot, and it wasn't just you know yes, the Middle Eastern markets were coming out. It was a World Cup year in Qatar. Um, we've seen Saudi Arabia spending a lot more money at, across segments, but certainly in tourism as well as sports, etc. Abu Dhabi, etc. So we hadn't really uh, looked at the Middle Eastern markets necessarily as competitors, but certainly in terms of uh, sort of share of mind, I guess. And, and uh, well, it's a dream voice. of mine, Susan, to ski in the desert. I mean, I can't. I haven't done that yet. I'm really <laughs> busting to do it. But 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 you look at the uh, you look at those nations, particularly Dubai. Now it's become a tourist destination yeah. for middle upper class Australians in a couple of years, right? I've got a next door neighbor with a lot of those who's there right now. Mm, right. But also look at the way that they're starting to do their marketing. They're much more creative in their storytelling as well. Yeah. So it's not just about volume of money and their their presence in market, but it's, you know, some of the destinations are being much more creative. And it wasn't just the Middle Eastern ones. Certainly, you know, we, we've seen Switzerland invest in um, new campaigns and creativity and use of ambassadors. Fiji uh, has been more creative and more present as well. Um, U.S. is coming out of the block. So, um, yeah, it, it was a really um, heightened moment of competition when we were looking to come out with our campaign. So we've set the strategic framework. Mr. Ritson, you're happy with it? Is there any more we want to go before we get to the no, brief? No, no, I, I think that's the point, right? She knew, I, I think the one other point I would add that Susan's very good on is it, it isn't perfect and she isn't chasing perfection. It's as good as it possibly can be. And I see, again, a lot of marketers strive for some perfect strategic approach and never get there and and it doesn't exist susan's very good at being very hard on herself and her approach but then she goes i think we got it move on and if there's one thing i've seen across the top cmos it's that ability to go it's there keep going yeah. we're not cert- we're not curing cancer there isn't 100 out of 100 scientific marketing's a lot of balls really yeah. You know, you're good at that. You Thank know, you, you said we've got, you. we've got it. You yeah. know, I remember you saying we've got it. We're really happy. No, just for the listener, no cash exchange at the table here on that one either. Just saying, <laughs> none, there might none. be later. Though. I'm, <laughs> I'm open. I want to. I want to signal that I'm open. <laughs> there, there's an endless amount of data in our category, to be honest, and there's also an immense amount of complexity in my category uh, as well in tourism. And and again, I talked to the stakeholders before. You can get into analysis paralysis, certainly. You know, so we need you know finding the sweet spot of the right amount of information to help us understand how things are working. You know. triangulating with highly imperfect sets of data to make a decision um, is really, really important. I think that is something that that we excel at um, as a team collectively. I, I, you know, put our research and insights team into this uh, as well. They are incredible partners. But I'd underscore that point. I mean, I've seen it a hundred times. I set simulations where the numbers deliberately don't add up to a hundred. And I'd say 20% of the class derail and never re-rail as a result of that. And it's a deliberate attempt at mine to teach them that marketing data isn't perfect data. It's a mishmash. You're saying they get stumped by your tricks? I give them ranges. <laughs> I say two different things don't, you know, the, the two different surveys on the same market don't have exactly the same data. And that's absolutely an intent to replicate what Susan's talking about, which is senior go-getting high net value marketers are able to get to the 80th percentile of certainty and go, to get any more of the 20 points on the table will take another five years, Got move it. on. Yeah. Got it. I tell you, that's a skill I would put right at the top of the marketing totem pole. Above creativity and all that other stuff, comfort within precision, which Susan's got, not slapdash, just we got it, team, move on. You don't Percent, see it enough. Percentage that do or don't? Oh, look, I'd say there's 20 or 30% that never 
move forward into a senior position because they can't rectify the fluidity the, of everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're dealing with known unknowns. It's not that accountants are better at maths than marketers. Accountants are counting money that is already there. In front of the nose. We're yeah. projecting mm. money that may be there next year with a bunch of known unknowns. Mm. It's not that we're bad at maths. It's that we are, we are not in a position to count anything yet. We're mm. projecting. And I think when you know that and you get that, like Susan does, you're able to then get enough, build the base and move on. And this is where scientific marketing isn't a good thing. It's great because it's made us more rigorous, but it's bad because it's training a lot of marketers to go, oh, the, the word, the S word means that everything must add up to 100.0. And Yeah, you can never balance to the penny, certainly. And again, particularly in, in our category where we don't, we don't transact, you know, so I don't always know on the, yeah. uh, on the other end how our partners do in their transactions until three, six months later. So it's really mm. important for us to build out a framework where we understand, you know, going into it, Again, having the right inputs. What do we know about our customers and, you know, where and how we can reach them with what messages, market by market? What are the most compelling? Like, we, we spend a lot of time understanding our drivers of choice. So why do people in various countries, why do they choose a long-haul holiday? Where do we measure up versus our competition, for mm -hmm. example? We do our creative testing with System 1 to know if we've developed something then that is going to connect. We then uh, have a whole range of campaign metrics that goes, okay, now it's out in the market. Is it working? So... Do we have the reach? You know, do we have the engagement? Uh, are we starting to see a lift in visits to our website, Australia.com? Are we seeing a growth in share of search? So these are all really great leading indicators. We have our brand tracking that we do quarterly as so if, well. If you pause mm. there and think what's, you know, what Susan just dropped there, right? That's where you begin to see the triangulation of lots of great imprecise tools, right? She's got a brand tracker across 15 countries, which she, I've seen her use with her teams brilliantly. It ain't rocket science, but it's good. It's annual, I think, biannual. Well, look, we we measure currently quarterly, Quarter. and then we do. Uh, interestingly, we measure quarterly. We tend to look at it annually, but we because we're trying to get better at understanding uh, the impact of our campaign activity in market, we're putting some monthly measures around it mm. as well, which I appreciate. At face value, it seems like it's perhaps too seasonality, often, though, right? But we need to understand the seasonality, and it really does vary again by country, and. For us, again, with limited budgets, understanding how we work with consumer behavior versus against consumer behavior is really, really important. So these are all the imprecise signals you talk about. And if you form. have three or four of them, I mean, your brand tracking you've got, you've got a good bit of pre-testing with System 1 who who are really, in my opinion, they're not going to tell you what to do in your creative, but they'll tell you if your creative's working. Landing, right. And then on top of all of that, you've got this ability to be able to essentially use different other metrics as you as you continue to see if things are working. Share of search for me, you know, Les Burnett's work in that area is most brands, small B2B, non-typical consumer goods brands, there is a really strong predictive value in using quote-unquote free data to demonstrate future mm, growth intent, or yeah. future yeah. decline, right? Mm. I mean, we've, you found it perfectly, right? Absolutely. We've, we've actually even invested in that data as well because we look at, um, you know, Skyscanner share of search as well. So we look at it broadly going, you know, culturally is Australia getting on people's radar and are people interested in, in a holiday in Australia? We look at city pair um, flight searches, et cetera, but we use specifically, you know, Skyscanner. Well, let's which, get again, to that not, data in a minute, perfect. Susan. I, like I want to get to, for instance, uh, so we'll get to that and what that was showing. Let's get to the brief though first. Yep. So you've got your strategic framework, you've got your plan, the brief, how good was it? Um, <laughs> and, and there was no tender here, right? MNC Saatchi was the creative shop that yep. was that was aligned under a statutory review and contract and they were the- They, they were, were the, agency record no at the time. Yeah. But, but again, key point. We tend to see briefs as this competitive, do we get the best agency? 
that's taken out of this equation, which kind of makes it clearer. You've still got a job, which is to communicate to your agency kind of the sign-ups between strategy and communications tactics, which is yeah. this is strategically what we want. Now, tactically, go off and make us something. Remember that we know, and this is you know based on good data from a very wide sample of big brands, around 95% of agencies come out of those briefs unclear what the client strategy is. Right. Well, I was going to say, Mark, because we know from the Better Briefs project that you've been involved with that marketers think they're hot on briefing, but they're actually quite shy. The agencies um, literally <laughs> don't know what the strategy is at the end of the brief. Right. right. So then, Susan, how would you self-assess your own brief? Clearly, whatever, if, even if it was shy, it worked because uh, there was some good work. But do you accept the I like to the, think it was premise? good. I don't know. I've yeah. put it in front of you. We I have to ask MC, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, look, I, I guess the proof is in the pudding in what was, what was produced. And look, I also think our, our brief was quite a collaborative process as well. You know, again, we had so many good inputs going into it, so much consumer understanding. We had a clear objective. We needed to drive the swift, swiftest recovery to 2019 arrivals and spend levels as we possibly could, you right. know, and we had, you know, measures in place from Oxford Economics. They were forecasting, um, if you include China, I think they were forecasting a 2024 return to COVID, 2019 levels, pre-COVID right. levels. That's yep. right. If you take out China and Hong Kong, because again, we didn't know when they were going to be opening. It was much later. It was sort of looking at 25 to 26 or so. Um, so we we knew what we were aiming for, you know. And we also, again, we knew where in the in the funnel that we uh, would be most effective, and we'd be able to drive again, the, create the biggest audience for our our partners to convert. And that was in driving consideration. And your targeting was clear because you'd already picked that group up. Yeah. Mm. And finally, you had that clear proposition around what you wanted to say about, about visiting Australia. Yes. And and our articulation in the brief, which, you know, now that I look at it, you know, seems like a, a cheap version really of our campaign line. <laughs> uh, but it was give a genuine Aussie welcome to come experience our way of life or our outlook on life. So it was really about, again, being warm and welcoming. We'd been shut for two years. So we need to really throw our arms open, open arms, and yeah. bring everybody, invite everybody down. You know, the genuine Aussie, so how do we be as distinctly Australian as possible? For me, that was, a again, a non-negotiable. I talked earlier about the challenge of misattribution, of confusion in our category. So we don't have enough budget um, for people to mistake us for another destination. It was important that people saw a piece of communications from us and went, yes, that's Australia. And yes, they have the positive associations, et cetera. But also importantly for me, it was also about making sure that we were layering one memory on top of another so that we were continuing to just reinforce Australian people's mind and be as present as we could. Okay. So from your smashingly crisp uh, brief, <laughs> how many concepts before it landed? What did you go through? What was that? Was there oh, two, you know three, this, five, six, seven? You know this process. It's, you know, we do territory development as you'd expect any agency and client to do together. I think we did a couple rounds of like broad territory development. Out of the first one, we had a couple concepts that we put forward. Um, one that was super interesting, leaning into the sort of the green and gold decade that's coming. So leaning into the sports thing. Interesting, but ultimately probably too complex and, and too convoluted. We went back to the drawing board and said, no, let's strip it right back to the essential, strip it back to the core. We actually went all the way back looking at our most effective campaigns over the years. And you cannot walk away from the power of that original Paul Hogan come and say good day um, campaign in the 80s. And you, we kind of just broke that down and went, he's actually doing all of it. He's leaning into the Australian character. You know, it's a it's a clear call to action. It's a clear invitation. He shows off the country. You know, he he does everything in that campaign that we were trying to do in a more modern more contemporary way with a bit of joy and warmth in it that that the world needed after such troubled times of the pandemic and also what we were facing into both economically, 
you know, the war in Ukraine, the world's a very volatile place right now. So we needed to present Australia as a as a warm and welcoming destination. So you landed with some concepts that were essentially around Say G'day and a kangaroo. I don't know whether the unicorn had landed by that time or not, but, <laughs> but that's essentially the core. You went you went and tested a bit of this with System One, yep. and you ended up being a rock star in terms of the the numbers that System One, which is a global player, right? It's measuring campaigns all over the yep. world. They put you right at the top tier uh, of the matrix of landing and cut through. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Very proud to say that the the body of work that we put into testing in 2022, uh, we were the consistently rated highest tester client on the system. Yep. Your um, score was four, consistently five higher than yeah. yeah. And we put a lot of work into testing and we tested it in a lot of markets. We also used them when we did our domestic testing as well with the Holiday Here This Year campaign with Hamish. And, uh, and remember that value of testing because we test because we want to make sure we've got the right yeah. thing. But for Susan, there's a, there's a, a an application here, which is all the internal publics from government through mm. to commercial stakeholders. You can point to evidence and say, it isn't my opinion. Look, we have data. And yeah. I think we don't see that rhetorical use of testing enough mm. To say, look, this campaign is good. The data is good, and yeah. and that's one of the yeah, big stakeholder management. Right? Uh, yeah. Look, it was really important, and I I have been on the record in previous years of going, I don't want to do creative testing. It takes you to the lowest common denominator, etc. But you know, again, in our in our context, where I I need to make make sure that I built confidence in the campaign, you know, my internal team as well as our external stakeholders, being able to say it isn't just I reckon, and it's not. 15 people sitting around a conference table eating cold pizza saying, oh, yeah, I reckon it is, you know, in the hundreds and in some markets, thousands of people that we showed this work to. And so that was incredibly important. But for us also to do multiple rounds of testing to understand how consumers responded to various changes that we made or the evolution of the campaign was really helpful. We knew if we were getting better. There's a bit of a side, which I, I will say for you, Susan, but um, there is a great anecdote you talk about, we've talked about in the past, where way back when you were uh, slightly younger than when <laughs> than you are now, um, yes. you were working at Chiant Day in LA on the Apple account, and you you were the one that had to deliver the work, the creative work for Apple to Steve Jobs personally in, in a hotel or something in Hawaii. To be clear, I was a junior burger bringing the work, yes. yes. But you have you have some creative heritage, which you sort of haven't let go of. Absolutely. I mean, it's such formative time in my career, right? When I was, you know, an early, you know, a young account manager, having such an incredible opportunity to work on Apple, literally within months of Steve going back to um, mm. to the business. The to glory lead it. days, really. The, yeah, total glory days. But I mean, what a crazy moment. Like that company was months away from being out of cash, right? You mm. know, and one of the first things Steve did is, nope, we need a message to our um, uh, our Apple fans around the world. We need a signal to the market that we are a strong and viable company. And what did he do? He invested in his brand and in advertising mm. and, you know, invested in premium media placements, you know, running spots, primetime TV, um, like incredible outdoor placements uh, around the country. Um, back in the day when, you know, weekly magazines were the thing, you know, back covers of Time magazine, inside front covers. He wouldn't know, have used System fold. 1 at that stage, I would imagine. No. He, he didn't do pre-testing oh, either, he did was, he? he? Yeah, look, he he's famously uh, says they never did any research, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure but there was there research was somewhere. And, yeah. but, we, <laughs> but we forget that role of advertising. Its primeval role is signaling. Yeah. yeah? You can have a blank ad that goes, this is the Apple logo, if it's on the right billboard, the right TVC, the right context, yeah. what it's signaling is we've got the peacock feathers, right? We've got yeah. so much resources. We're just pissing mm. our money away on this stuff. That's how unafraid we are of bankruptcy. Don't you know? Yeah, mm. yeah. That's, you know, a bullshit statistic, but that's 30, 40% of advertising. Mm. Even before we get to salience is look at us. We've got money. We're successful. We wouldn't invest in this product and this advertising, so you should invest in it too, because look, we're really, we're putting money in. 
we all underestimate that that's that really sort of reductive power of signaling that and, is at the heart of it all. Mm. And it's not just to consumers, but it is it's to your partners. It's you know in that yeah. instance, it's to your retailers, yeah. etc. You know, and I've worked uh, in automotive before. We used to say half of our audience was our dealers. I've worked uh, on fast food brands when I was agency side, and you know half our audience was the franchisees, franchisees etc. Yeah. And certainly for us, when I think about our marketing, yes, it's about all about our end consumer, but I'm super clear about the importance of our trade partners in market, about our airline partners, mm. um, about our online travel agents. They need to believe in us as a destination. They need to know that we are creating demand and desire for us as a destination. And ultimately, we are creating a warm audience for them to turn around and convert. So understanding that customer journey all the way through uh, to what our partners do is important. So Mark talked about stakeholders. It's a really critical one for you because you're a government-funded organization mm-hmm. and there is just lots and lots of attention, right? So with that system one work, when you were selling in what you were doing uh, with Say Day and the kangaroo and the unicorn, et cetera, how did you sell it in? Was it system one? Were you explaining to your board, to your partners that are in the broader tourism industry in Australia that what memory structures do, what distinctive act, did you get down to that or is that just too, was that too granular? How did you sell it in? As with any communications, it's about understanding your audience. And there were some audiences that we went deeper on the the sort of marketing science, if you will, to help them understand it. There were some that we left it at a higher uh, a higher level and got them excited about the the creativity and the storytelling and the media that we would be getting around it. Um, but yes, that sell in for for us was incredibly important. And I made sure that people understood the lengths that we went to uh, to make sure that we were building out the right campaign. Again, the inputs the testing, um, uh, to build that confidence in what we were going to market with. And, you know, prior to launch, I probably spent about two to three months uh, doing a bit of a road trip, um, you know, in uh, around the tourism industry to key operators, to our state partners, and even going and talking to some of our marketing uh, kind of influencers, I guess, around the marketplace as well, because I was keen for them to understand what we had done and why. I'm keenly aware of the fact that people, uh, you know, that marketing media in Australia really focus on the headlines around our campaigns. They talk, you know, they'll put the 30 or the 60 second spot up and they'll talk about the um, talent that we use, but there's so much more to how we develop our campaigns. And there's so much more in our go-to-market plans that make what we do so effective. Mm. You know, it isn't just about our advertising. It is about our full funnel strategy full funnel, and yeah. our whole body of work. Hopefully we get a bit of time to, to unpack a bit of that. So what happens is then, so you've sold it to the stakeholders, you launch in October, 2022. Mark Richardson, when you first saw the work, was it instant strategic arousal? <laughs> so I'm I'm in this position four or five times a year where I've got a mate like Susan or AN of a CMO who's in love with their advertising and has just spent nine months building it and they're sharing it, you know, among friends before it goes out. And I'm always very careful because... I want to like it because I know the person that's made it. I'm rarely in the target market anyway. And I'm looking at it from a perspective that I don't think most people would. Not not that it's more advanced, but it's just different. So I, I my response is always, hmm. It's very rare I, I lose my shit either way, right? It's like, hmm, we'll see. You know, we'll see. And you, you got to wait, right? Where Where I had the greatest of fun, though, was realizing that there were many quote-unquote experts of marketing here in Australia that would be jumping to offer their critique of the campaign. And here we were in a delicious place. And I actually emailed Susan at the time and I said, wait, watch this. When this campaign comes out, you're literally going to get all these doofuses telling you that it's a shit campaign. And literally none of them are in the market because by definition, they all live in Australia and they are in the market for a holiday in Australia. And sure enough... Sadly predictable, there was, I think, you know, a dozen or so very negative takes or, 
yeah, negative takes on the campaign. And so I sort of rounded them all up and collected them and then waited for a bit of data, which could have gone either way, by the way, but which is, as you'll see. It wouldn't have actually because we'd done our homework, but yeah, 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 it wouldn't have, you're right. But I waited. would not allow that much. That's right, that's right. So I waited and I collected all these wonderful quotes about why Australia was, you know, the kangaroo wasn't right and it was too childish and it was infantile and blah, 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 and uh, cliched. And then I just wrote a nice article just naming all the people, all their stupid quotes and pointing out that as marketing experts, they literally don't understand the first step of marketing, which is market orientation, which is, are you in the market for this? Well, no, you live in Australia. And B, then do you have data to support your point of view? No. So what you think is literally of no value at all here. And we all make the mistake occasionally, but going to press and writing a critique as a marketing expert that this mm. campaign isn't very good is for me the height of everything that's bad about our industry. I yes, think. yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. it was interesting to see some of the commentary back on some of the negative takes on the campaign. Um, you know, there was one person who had written something like, really, a kangaroo, is this the best we can do? And yeah. I saw other people going in going, I live in London. I can tell you right now, tourists come to see our double-decker buses in the Tower <laughs> like, of London. Yeah, yeah. Somebody from Kenya wrote, you know, something like, people absolutely come down here to see, you know, <laughs> safaris, George safaris yeah. and our yeah. animals, et cetera, which was, was fascinating. And I occasionally went in. I couldn't help myself, but occasionally comment. I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to invite more uh, no naysayers. Point, yeah. There's no point in engaging. But I couldn't, you know, when, you know, sometimes people question the use of the CGI characters, for example, and whether it was premium enough. I'm like, well, I don't know. The Queen of England sat down with Paddington Bear. So I'm pretty sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a precedent for that, you know. And it was backed up in all that uh, research you'd done earlier, which said the attachment, this, the, the yeah. connection to Australia was in overseas markets was everything you just said, all the NAF stuff that quote NAF stuff. That, but that it's, locals... shor it's shorthand, it's code. And, and I also should also say, look, we, we use those things because it's important to land them as the communications as being from Australia. But we also understand that you need to stretch and, and help people understand more about our country because, you know, our value proposition is very much in our breadth of offering and, and destination. So we talk about being fresh and familiar. It should probably be the other way around, being familiar and fresh. So yes, I understand that's Australia. That's I recognize that. Or I've always wanted to see the Opera House. I must do that, you know, coming out of this, this horrific experience that we, we have had globally. I really want to go do that bucket list item. But then I also, across the breadth of our campaign, across all of our channels, we show a lot more about Australia and we tell a deeper, richer story. Margaret, and just for, for some of the listeners, and we, we have lots of them that may not be deep in the science or the effectiveness stuff, just in like a, a minute, tell us about distinctiveness, uh, memory structures and salience and why that stuff is important, you know, in a, in a top line. It really does all go back to Ehrenberg Bass, who really did give us 10 years ago a marvelous new perspective on the way that most consumer decisions are made. And we were overthinking it. We were certainly overly enamored with complex differentiation. And what Ehrenberg Bass, I think, proved to everyone, I mean, everyone that was familiar with the literature, was that simply coming to mind as quickly as possible, as often as possible, in buying situations, gets you as far down the road as you need to get. Now, that's not complex. It's not some emotional, you know, challenge. It's really very, very binary. But nonetheless, it's important. And there's a couple of ways to do it, right? Their, their approach to category entry points is work out what are the places where you want the brand to come to mind. But the other part, which is, I think, equally important is Brands are often guilty of not coming to mind even when they're talking to consumers because they simply, to use Byron Sharp's famous phrase, don't look like themselves. 
So they overcomplicate how they present themselves. They, they make themselves more mysterious than they need to. So in their famous research, you know, more than eight out of 10 TV ads, the next day the consumer is struggling to remember which was the brand behind the ad because we've overcomplicated it. So it's this ability to generate salience and coming to mind that most brands miss and that Susan was laser focused on from the beginning, which is let's not create a tableau of images of beaches and rivers and forests because everyone does that and it's not distinctive. Let's create a campaign that looks like Australia. Can- kangaroos, and that goes back to straight to Brand Australia. Brand Australia goes back, yeah, ag- yeah. again, our brand codes. We talk to thousands of consumers around the world, you know, and everyone recognizes it and have positive associations with us. And, and by the way, it. that's the key point, right? It's not what we think Australia looks like. That That's not the question. The question is, what do the 15 target countries mm. associate? Yeah. What, what brings Australia to mind for them? Hence this interesting debate from Australians yeah. about we're more than kangaroos. Yeah. It's yes. such an interesting challenge for us. And I think one that very few brands have to tackle something like like this, which is the disparity between, you know, how we want to be seen as a people, as a country, and how we kind of see ourselves in modern contemporary Australia, which, by the way, is varies greatly across different segments of the country, versus those shorthand codes, those things that we need to appeal to those people overseas. And I appreciate that sometimes people might look at some of those things and go, we're more than that. We're more contemporary than that. Haven't we outgrown that? Yes and no, you know. Yeah, that's um, right. So walking that that fine line is can be really tricky. So okay, now now the, we're a year on. I'm assuming you're on the mics because there's a good story to tell. If there wasn't, you wouldn't be here, <laughs> and it'll be Ritson and I sort of you know saying, "Well, that this is why shit. it failed." Yeah, I yeah, can tell yeah, you, right. yeah. uh, no, we no, knew no. this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, the numbers. So what what's happened yep. in, in a year, Susan? Yeah. So a year later, and remember, there's many things that obviously affect tourism and and our arrivals and whatnot. We've had China open much later, for example, but we're very excited about. Uh, where they are going, we we uh, you know have seen China in the news a lot this week about how we'll be welcoming broader set of visitors from China coming. So that we've just gone on their ADS for group travel. Um, but look, overall, we're at about eighty percent of arrivals month on month. Eighty uh, percent of arrivals, which is amazing, and our spend levels are just ahead of that, outpacing inflation. So we know that we've got more of our high yielding travelers coming. We know that they're spending more here. You know, we know that our our tourism industry has confidence that they can can charge. Uh, what they need to. They didn't need to discount their their services, their products. So that's a good news story. Well, the airlines certainly aren't. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't say that with a tourism not, person. Not not to and about. this is bottom of the funnel, remember. So, we, you know, you don't, it's not like buying yogurt. Traveling to Australia is going to take three, four, five, six years to play out properly. Mm. So we're, uh, it's already moving, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and as you would both know, uh, moving brand metrics can take a long time, you know, and that is why it's important that we have a set of, you know, we have campaign metrics to help us understand whether the work is thinking like, or that whether the work is working like we think it will, uh, and whether our media strategies are reaching the audiences that we need to. Uh, in the short term, we looked at impact of consideration amongst people who had seen the campaign. So again, another measure of whether the, the work is connecting. Uh, and we saw great uh, increases amongst, again, people who had seen the campaign. We are now um, six, you know, nine months coming actually onto a year past launch. We're seeing impact on our consideration numbers. So we're sort of averaging two to three percentage points increase in consideration across our key markets. Within a year. Within a year. Is that's, that good, Mark? It's very good. It's I mean, if good. you look at awareness, that's the easiest one to move. It's not easy. But as you come down the funnel through consideration and then preference, obviously it tightens and tightens. And and yeah, two to three, we'd have a party. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, if we were working, I've worked for a bank where we got to 4%, was it? Yeah, 4% we had a party. 
Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's part mm-hmm. of okay. yeah. And importantly, also, our message is land- landing. So we're starting to see data out of um, China, for example. So we only launched the campaign in China in at the end of June or so. Okay. Um, but early indications are that our yeah, brand perceptions about being welcoming are up 15 percentage points in China amongst people who had seen the campaign. So that's mm. that tells me that the work is connecting. And as we continue to invest in that market, as we continue to build on this campaign, uh, in China and other markets, you know, we're, we're confident that we're onto a winner, but consistency is key. And I wonder what you saw, Susan, in terms of media, because you spread it across plenty of channels. Where's the big win for you across the different media? And it's not a loaded question. I'm just trying to think, where where did you get, maybe not your biggest investment, but you but you felt like it was, it was over-indexing in return? Video. Yeah. Video. And, uh, you know, channels vary by market in in the U.S. Connected TV through YouTube was really important. You know, we have different platforms in other countries, obviously. But and look, it's no surprise when you're selling a country as beautiful as Australia, you you know, selling holidays, Mm -hmm. you need video storytelling. You know, we needed uh, to engage in, you know, more emotional storytelling, but also just show off this beautiful country. So Mm. um, video will continue to be a really important part of our strategy going forward. And video, define it. So you did talk about YouTube, but it's, it's digital video, broadcast video beyond... We talk screens now. Screens, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're, a... we're trying to just even move away from the notion of digital or non-digital mm. because nowadays everything is sort of digital. So it's really about screens and how people engage with, long, uh, with uh, video content. I mean, we obviously famously trialed long format video with the launch of the campaign, which gave us um, a fantastic media spike, a really great PR I mean, that was, that's worth mentioning, right? YouTube, the average was what, you got 70% through to the end of the ad? No? Yes, something like that, yeah. Pretty incredible and it was, what was it, completion eight rate. Nine Particularly minutes. in the US, it was nine minutes, yeah. Really? Incredibly right. strong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I often ask marketers about YouTube and, and what their skip-the-ad ratios are. You at least know it. Most of them don't, which I find, you know, yeah. quite surprising. Um, but it wasn't listen- even just the ad, though. It was actually our, literally our long-format content. Yeah, you know, right. Eight, uh, you nine know, minutes, like, right. Yeah, the, the view-through rate was really strong, but also, you know, like we're, the, people were watching at least three to four minutes of a nine-minute film. I mean, I'll tell you what, you know, getting three to four minutes of, of dedicated attention to yeah. our destination is pretty amazing. It is. And so I've got to ask this question here, and it's the right time to do it. Mark and, and you, Susan, talked about mass strategy, mass marketing, mass campaigns versus personalization. When you start talking about high yield travelers, which is your target market in any country that you're going for, how do you reconcile the tension between going mass for not a mass segment, so high yielding travelers are not a mass segment, and not be tempted to get right down into personalization, segmenting to the wazoo to talk to and, and find those high yielding travelers. How does that play out? Yep. So again, full funnel marketing, uh, we, and also, you know, we think about two-speed marketing as well. So making sure that we've got the brand activity running at the right time of the year. Um, again, we don't have budget to be always on with both brand and conversion marketing with our partners. So, you know, we have identified the, the points in the year where we really heavy up on the, when consideration is sort of our key driver and we need to make sure that we're landing that. And then when do we bring our partnership activity on to really convert that demand? So, it's about building desire and demand, and then we work with our partners like an Expedia, a Qantas, a Singapore Airlines, a flight center. Then on theirs on, and they are experts in how they find these audiences and how they target them. So we collaborate with them on those conversion campaigns. What's your take on this market and ter- uh, market yeah. in terms of that tension? I think the one factor we've underestimated, which we're now getting good data on, is if we were to say in America that of the total traveler base, thirty percent are in Susan's target, the costs of finding that 30% with more certainty usually outweigh the less accurate 
mass marketing approach. A bit more of, spray. Yeah, right. and I think that's what's playing out in most cases. I think personalization remains the most overstated mm. piece of bullshit in the history of the marketing industry. I think if you have a first-party database, which many of Susan's partners yep. do, that's a different story. But this personalization story misses the fact that, you know, again, we, we can oversimplify it, but most people in most countries are looking for mostly the same thing. Mm. So positive wastage, which is a term I heard of, you know, five, mm. six years ago. Yes. Actually, it's not a bad concept. It's not a bad concept for a couple of reasons. First, some of these people who are non-targets will become targets later. And some of these people who aren't ever going to be targets, you want them to know about what you're doing to help you make the decision. Mm. It's the old Ferrari story, right? You're mm. not going to be able to afford a Ferrari. Or the Rolex at Wimbledon. Um, there's a lot of people exactly. that aren't going to buy Rolexes, but you want the Rolex owners want other people to know how good Rolex is. Yeah. And the idea that we called it wastage it remains one of the dumbest things in the history of TV. It was a TV advertising term from the 70s, right? That it was wastage, but it was a good thing, rather than just calling it cultural capital or something mm. back in the day. Mm. So yeah, no, I think I think what we're learning is there is absolutely a case for segmenting and targeting and even personalization. But what doesn't hold up when you do that, many cases, not every case, is A, the segments aren't that different in what they want and think. And even if they are, the costs of reaching them relative to just hitting everyone in a more wastage-driven way are often prohibitive. Mm. And so I think we are seeing a swing back towards not necessarily total sophisticated mass marketing, because that's also very expensive. Mm. But Selective mass marketing. Selective <laughs> mass marketing, which is what Susan's kind of doing here at the mm. top of funnel, which is going, it's not some tightly defined segment or segments. It's also not everyone that could travel. We've kind of made a call somewhere in the middle. Uh, mm. Now, remember, just for the brand consideration top of funnel stuff, when we go downstairs... United Airlines, British Airways will be doing... They're activating. Yeah, absolutely, with performance and targeting. Mm. The two can live together. Where I see brands getting in real trouble is they're trying to do both. And that's where we get these super complex segmentations. Mm. And we're trying to build our brand to these three segments and not those four segments. That's where I think it's a mishmash. Yeah. In our world, I think it's not just that the two can live together. It's that the two have to live together. We need, like, again, as Brand Australia, we have to be creating that desire for our country. Nobody else is flying yep. the flag for us. Nobody else is, is selling the dream of Australia. And creating value in us as a destination um, if we leave it solely to sort of bottom of the funnel, then it will become, you know, probably a much more price-driven sort of approach. And ultimately, that doesn't help our operators here uh, on shore either. We are looking for our premium travelers. We're looking for our high-yielding travelers. We want them to value what we offer as a destination and not have to make a decision based solely on a price point. And remember that the long and the short of it, again, I think was badly titled. Phil DeBenet's work covers this 10 years ago. It's just everyone talks about long-term brand building versus short-term performance nestled in the middle of that work is the recognition that for the long-term brand building, you should go after everyone in category if you can afford it, mm. and you should target specific segments, broad segments, for activation. They've always said that. It's just never been a big pronounced part of their And you work. said it a few years ago. It's not. It's and, not or. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's long and short, and it's mass and targeted. Mm. And I think you see, again, with the overall Tourism Australia approach, that's what, to get someone from... LA to Sydney on holiday, you need a big brand campaign at the top of funnel aimed at everyone. And then you need a targeted offer that comes from United Airlines that says, bah, bah, bah. 
and you know, I think that works much better than either just brand or either just performance targeted stuff. Okay, Susan. So we've got some good numbers, good results happening on the on the brand metrics, on consideration, awareness, preference, all that starting to happen. What are we seeing now in terms of the numbers flowing through to local market tourism operators? So, are, is there? Bums on seats, is there bookings on the ground? Are people, can you quantify that? Yeah, look, forward forward bookings are looking good and looking healthy. But look, as always, our recovery, um, you know, varies by parts of the country and it varies um, from region. You know, for us, getting aviation uh, back in full is incredibly important. We currently are forecasting to be back at 95% of aviation capacity in terms of seats by November. Now, that, of course, means that the configuration of seats coming into Australia may be different, though, maybe coming from different markets. We've had an uplift of aviation capacity from India, for example, which means our arrivals and our expenditures out of India um, have actually already surpassed 2019. Right. So we know those things are incredibly important. Some of our other markets, you know, China, we still need to um, see some of um, the carriers from there starting to point their planes back down to Australia. But that will come, definitely. How's it landing with the Americans? The campaign's really strong. It's doing very well. We're seeing, yeah, we're, so our forward bookings, as we get into December, which really starts to be peak from our Western markets, we're looking really good. Okay, yeah. Right. So, but look, as always, you know, um, there's a lot of variables and we'll continue to do the job that we need to do, which is keep that funnel, uh, keep the top of the funnel as wide as possible and setting our partners up for success. All right, we're closing this out very shortly. Um, the irony of all of this, Susan, is that you are now in a statutory review of your creative uh, agencies. After talking all about this, you're now going to go, right, we're, you know, what, bust the contracts up. So it's not nothing other than it's time. What is next? Because this is the thing that I guess we've talked about. You're already getting questions from various players and stakeholders going, right, what are we doing now? And you're actually, even in this review, saying agencies, creative agencies, yep. don't get carried away. You're going to hold the line. Yeah. Consistency is key here. Is this yes. what you're, where you're going? Yes, 100%. And uh, as you can imagine, I can't talk at length about the tender. We have Feel to, free. you know, <laughs> no, 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 no. There are Commonwealth procurement rules that would prevent me from doing that. But what I will say is what I have said for the last 12 months since we've launched that campaign is that we built this to last. We built this to run for years. You know, we our intent is for the campaign assets that we have now to run for two to three years. We did our financial modeling around that. So we would invest upfront in production and then we would invest in media over the you know two to three years that followed. We've done creative extensions with FIFA um, for China, et cetera. We'll find those opportunities again, but we will look to, you know, refresh with another core brand campaign at the right time, which will be, you know, another year plus down the road. I've been very clear that our intent is to for the next chapter to be come and say good day, to still use the Ruby character, to build on what we've done, to continue to, you know, make it better and better. But we don't want to be chopping and changing. We lose the multiplier effect of consistency when you're constantly going out with a new campaign. You have to retrain consumers on how to identify and recognize your brand. We don't have enough money or resource to be doing that. So consistency really is going to be the, the bedrock. Consistency, but improvement. But Yeah, Mark, you're nodding furiously with this one. You, you buy this whole uh, thing. Again, don't. Susan's on top of things, and this isn't her personal point of view. She has learned this from the data. We are increasingly of the mind, generally speaking, that wear out doesn't exist, except in the industry, where everyone wants a new big campaign every season. I think that has a couple of problems, and Susan's already articulated them. First, you're going to spend 20%, 30% of your total budget on creative. If you realize that you don't need new creative every year, suddenly that's giving you 20, 30 points more media to spend every year. And if you're really clever like Susan, in the first year, you can dump more of your money into creative to get that great multi-year execution. The second thing is, again, as she said, 
you don't want to be completely reinventing the wheel so consumers have to recognize a new wheel every year. I question whether we even need new executions for most clients. Maybe we need a new creative version on the same theme, but maybe just the same ad. And I think we are, if you take, I mean, I think to be fair, Tourism Australia is an example of brilliant annual campaigns that were all individually good, but lacked, at least going back to the time of Paul Hogan, what I would call campaign ability. It ain't a campaign if it lasts for a year and then you need a new one. Campaigns should be multi, multi multi-year and you should be able to keep doing new executions on the same theme, with the same codes, with the same message, as if we're driving the same nail into the same wooden post Mm. and piling those layers of meaning and salience, you know, on top of the consumer. So I think we, it's probably the newest area. And again, Susan's on top of it early that we are encouraging clients. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And there is a hoary old statistic, which is pretty much true that four out of five of the new campaigns that brands launch are not going to be as effective as the one that they're replacing. Mm. And interestingly, talking to the guys at System One... Is that where the data comes? That's the data point? No, it precedes them. Okay. It's been, it was done about 10 years ago. But oh. they found similar things. They've disproved wear out since. And they would echo that data point pretty much. System One will regularly go to clients and show them this new campaign you want to launch. We've tested it. It's okay, but it's not as effective as your old campaign. And what's interesting is that costs about $10,000 for System 1 to do that test, which is remarkable. And second, when they deliver the news, the clients are always disappointed, according to System 1. Because rather than going, oh, shit, you've just saved us so much money and given us an amazing insight, they're disappointed because they want a new campaign because that's what they do. Mm. And so I think the fact that Susan's here saying it's great we have a habit of doing a new big annual campaign every year. We are never going to do that. And there's absolutely no reason, by the way, why, why come and say G'day couldn't last for 20 years. Mm. It takes 10 years for it to work, in my opinion. And just to give a little bit of evidence to that as well is we have gone out and tested our ad in, I think, five or six of our core markets again, just to be confident that we haven't lost any uh, any impact from it or or any effectiveness. We're still scoring you know, high fours and fives. So it, you know, remains in the top 10 to 1% of ads that we're testing. It's still top not only of the travel and tourism category, but also across their entire ad set. So I've got great confidence that what we've um, developed will have longevity. I've also tested it in the U.S. market against a high-income audience, so 350000 per year and up. Scores through the chart still. We're mm-hmm. getting, again, high fives. We're getting even higher in terms of brand fluency, et cetera. So I remain as confident in our creative assets, but importantly, very confident in the in the brand platform and the, the creative strategy going forward. So I think we've got a sense from you of what's next, which is, um, and not in a bad way, more of the same, yep. more consistency. That's what's coming even with new, potentially whatever you do with your, your creative roster. Um, so we've got that. Mark Ritson, lessons, just a, a recap really, lessons for brands marketers the world over from what Susan's yeah, done is I, what? Nothing new. And I say that with all great respect for Tourism Australia. Get your strategy sorted first. Don't brief your agency till you know what the strategy is. That's a key lesson. Be clear on the strategic questions of targeting, positioning, and objectives. When you go into the campaign itself, I think codification, distinctive brand assets should be at the top of your list. I think emotion, being clear on where you are on the funnel in terms of long and short, also important. 
testing and pre-testing and tracking. So not only so you can prove it's working, but also so you can learn and get better. You wrap that all up together and you've got, you know, the quintessential effectiveness toolkit, right? The power of video, Mm. if you can afford it and use correctly. I think it's all there. And I think we'll see over the next four or five years that the power of that effectiveness baked into Tourism Australia playing out in successful tourism. What happens, by the way, as Susan knows better than me, is people get used to a baseline very quickly. And what they start saying is, yeah, but we, you know, Australia's always performed at that level. You know, the last two or three years, we've been getting these many visitors, blah, blah, blah. So at some point, the effectiveness of a long-term campaign becomes assumed and then disappears. And that's when it takes a really smart marketer and CEO to go, we, we have to keep doing Hold this because if right. we take this away, mm. we'll go back to a reality everyone's forgotten, which I hope Australia isn't dumb enough to do. Susan, textbook Coggle, any final thoughts for your peers or for yourself and the learning on this one? Yeah, I just, I can't say uh, strongly enough the importance of getting your essentials right. Focus on the fundamentals. It's really easy to get distracted by, you know, headlines or what's new in marketing. And, you know, all of those things can help you deliver your messaging and your marketing, but focus on the basics and it will pay off for you in the long run. And Mac, just to prove that point, Susan appears not to have mentioned once in this whole interview any role for AI in any of those? Yeah, work? yes, well, well done. <laughs> How did you survive with yes, that AI? It's a great one. Um, I did. I, I do regret we're out of time, but we didn't get to you know mid funnel and content and a whole bunch of things that sit underneath that because that does play a big part. It's a lot we're, more. We're, we're, yeah. we're out of time. Uh, so Mark Ritson, um, who is literally come straight from Taronga Zoo, where he was camping out with bears, giraffes, and monkeys. He's probably Love used that. to the latter a bit. Great tourism experience. Well yes. done. Could do with more sleep. Yeah. Well, that's the red wine answer, isn't it? And Susan off and building out uh, Brand Australia. Great conversation. Thank Thanks for joining. Stay safe in your travels. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.